0: February, and welcome to the Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine, where we talk all things mental health. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Fallis. With me is Will Heinecker.
1: Will, how are things? Jeremy, good to be on with you. Things are well. Uh, Sunshine is out, which means we'll be on the golf course in no time. But in all seriousness, just excited for this episode. Got some great content and a great guest.
0: This is our second episode of 2021 and we'll go through some of our mental minutes in just a little bit. Then we'll be joined by Daisha Price of the UM School of Social Work, where we'll tackle how mental health has a continuum of wellness, how wellness serves as activism during times of social unrest, and differentiate mental health from mental illness, among many other things. She was a terrific interview and you're going to really enjoy it. So without delay, let's get to the minutes We'll try to keep these brief so we can get to our discussion with Daisha as quickly as possible. So uh, Will had a, a great conversation earlier this year with Dr. Nasu Malas in our fourth episode about pediatric emergency care and psychiatry. Well, this week from February 3rd to February 9th is Children's Mental Health Awareness Week. So Will, take it away. Yeah.
1: So the National Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health has sponsored this week in order to raise awareness about children's mental health. The importance of positive mental health, obviously essential to a child's healthy development from birth. And the CDC, the Center for Disease Control has an excellent rundown of mental health in childhood with simple things like explaining what it is, symptoms and treatments, and other conditions related to mental health, as well as information on child development, data, statistics, research, articles, and ways to improve access to care. And this takes on
0: greater significance given the pandemic and remote learning for some families. Uh, Will, this certainly trends closer to adolescence in your work, but, but give the listeners an idea of our team's work with the peer-to-peer program here at Michigan. What does it do? How does it work? And how has it helped?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, adolescent mental health is obviously a really important topic and increasingly so during the pandemic. The peer to peer program is a mental health program designed for middle and high school students. We created it back in 2009 uh, when I was attending U of M, not working for the program. But uh, peer to peer is built on the knowledge that one, many mental health disorders, uh, upwards of 50% of all mental health issues, will first present themselves during adolescence. And number two, that teens are more likely to listen to other teens or their peers than they are to well-meaning adults. And so with peer-to-peer, we've got a couple of goals. We wanna educate middle and high school students about depression and depressive illnesses. We want to support the teams of students known as the peer mentors in their schools to find creative ways to convey that mental health knowledge that they have learned to their peers throughout the year at their respective schools. And then those peer mentors aim to raise awareness reduce stigma, and promote help seeking when needed for mental health issues. So ultimately, Jeremy, just as in the the mission of the Depression Center, to help promote the early detection of depression, bipolar disorder, and related mental illnesses. So can you give us a
0: favorite memory of yours that you have or anything from the Students Awareness Campaigns that really sticks with you?
1: Yeah, man, there's been so many. Um, Yeah, one event from uh, one of the school's campaigns. is a speaker named Ed D. Williams, uh, pronounced that way, Ed-Dee Williams, uh, presented to the students there about racial disparities and cultural differences in mental health. And it was a part, as I said, of their peer-to-peer campaign. But he talked about how the DSM-5, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual um, that clinicians use, that that can be very helpful for them to diagnose mental health issues but how it's actually predominantly based on data from white males who are their uh, research participants. And so as he spoke about the need for more diverse research and representation, you know, you could see the light bulbs just going off for these students. Um, some students who, you know, previously never maybe thought much about mental health um, or were interested, were asking tons of questions. Uh, even more signed up for a study on young black men which is Eddie's area of expertise and research uh, he's a PhD student at the University of Michigan and and then a couple students were so inspired by his his talk that they decided to start a podcast to talk more openly about mental health and illness in their communities so that's just one example from one campaign at one school uh, of the impact that the peer to peer program has had and if you would like to learn more about it uh, visit depressioncenter.org p2p for more info
0: oh, thanks for running that down it's it's one of our best programs i i always say it's one of uh one of the flagship things that we do and probably one of the things that we do at the depression center that creates the most impact in a positive manner and now that it's expanded to middle schools it's uh it's really unparalleled compared to you know, almost what other teachings happen in the schools, and something that I really wish had existed when I was in uh, middle and high school. So, uh, to tie it all together, I'm excited to hear from Daisha and her experience working with families in the mental health sphere as a social worker as well. Uh, we'll do our quick sports minute, a news update, and then we'll get to that conversation right after that. So, Will, here is our sports minute. You have 30 seconds. Go
1: all right gotta go quick i um, gonna use my sports minute half a minute uh congratulate a couple of uh, brothers uh former teammates or a couple of them one before my time but mike hart um best running back of all time at u of m leading rusher of all time played here from 2004 to 2007 has rejoined or has joined the michigan coaching staff um, so excited for mike Same thing with Ronald Bellamy, who I remember watching growing up, uh, back with Braylon Edwards and Steve Breston and those guys. Played from 99 to 02 and has also joined the Michigan staff. And then one more I just found out, uh, the captain, good buddy on our uh, Team 132, the 2011 Sugar Bowl team, Kevin Coger, who's been with the Green Bay Packers, just got hired by the San Diego Chargers, and uh, they had their first um, son. So big congrats to all those guys. Uh, Always love to see people from the brotherhood.
0: Surely you mean the Los Angeles chargers.
1: Did I say San Diego?
0: Absolutely. And that's okay. We're going to leave that in there. So. (laughs) All right. So here's mine. Uh, It is February and it's black history month. And I want to give a shout out to Willie O'Ree. Willie is the Jackie Robinson of hockey. And you may not have heard of him before. Uh, He was the first black man to play in the NHL. He was called up by the Boston Bruins and made his debut in January of 1958. And not only is it remarkable that he played in the NHL, but he overcame a severe eye injury that surely would have held him out from ever playing back then. So he held that fact away from the Bruins. Um, He was partially blind in one eye and um, he persevered anyway. So he ultimately scored 14 points, four goals and 10 assists in his career. Um, He did that all in 1961. He overcame racist remarks during games and uh, you know, he just, he dealt with a lot of flack that most black athletes back then did, and some still do today. Unfortunately, uh, he uh, he ultimately moved back to the Western Hockey League. He won two scoring titles, including uh, 30 goals over four seasons. Uh, sorry, four seasons of 30 goals or more. Uh, He played in the minor leagues until he was 43 years old. Uh, He was the only black player to play in the NHL until Mike Marson was drafted by the Washington Capitals in 1964. So 13 years after Willie O'Ree left uh, the league. In 1998, O'Ree became the NHL's diversity ambassador. Uh, He earned the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal in 2019. And just this past January, the Boston Bruins announced that they will retire his number 22. That ceremony will take place uh, in a couple weeks on February 18th Um, and this month, all NHL teams will wear a commemorative helmet decal honoring Overy. Currently there are 33 black players actively playing in the NHL. Um, So I really want to give a shout out to him. I know that was longer than a minute, but his story is really amazing. It's pretty well unknown, uh, but it's becoming a little bit more widely known. Now Uh, he is 85 years old now, I believe. Uh, he's still you know, a big uh, activist in hockey, and he, I'm very glad that the Bruins are retiring his number, and I hope that the NHL considers uh, doing with his number similar to what Major League Baseball did with Jackie Robinson's number 42. Wow.
1: Uh, I just can't imagine having to deal with what these guys deal with. Um, I'm really glad to hear that they're retiring Willie's number, uh, I also second your move to retire across the league um, kind of goes to what Daisha is going to talk about in our interview, all the different parts of life that coalesce to, to make up our well-being and thinking of, of what he must've had to gone through, but, um, you know, the NHL and, and hockey as a whole are still unfortunately plagued by diversity issues that we also are plagued with as a nation and, and grappling with them. But, you know, ultimately, Jeremy, I think sports are one of the best ways to meet and succeed with. People from all different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and, you know, sports are the ultimate meritocracy, at least at amateur levels. So uh, appreciate you bringing up that bit.
0: Well said. So on to news and updates.
1: Will, this is
0: you. Give us a quick
1: rundown. Yeah. So the DOCC, Depression on College Campuses Conference, registration for the 2021 DOCC is open Um, DOCC will take place virtually March 9th and 10th. Our theme this year is addressing the dual pandemic, COVID-19 and racial justice on college student mental health. All students from any campus are free to attend and professionals are just $75. We will be offering CEU credits for those eligible. You can visit depressioncenter.org slash DOCC for more information. And then Campus Mindworks has started its wellness groups again, uh, I'm sorry, this semester we started again. So twice monthly wellness groups are geared for undergraduates. Uh, they continue in February, March and April. Graduate students and professional students can join on the first Thursday of each month during the winter term, can visit campusmindworks.org for the schedule and registration information And one more bit of news, Um, not so mental health specific, um, but useful information. Michigan Medicine has been rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine since December. As of Tuesday, February 2nd, almost 50,000 doses have been received and used by Michigan Medicine. Most importantly, eligible patients 65 and over are set to receive their vaccine visit uofmhealth.org for more information on vaccines. You can also visit your local governing body's health website to find out when and how you can get the vaccine in your area. And Jeremy, um, just something that makes me proud to to be a member of Michigan Medicine. That's fantastic.
0: Indeed. It's really good news. Um, Obviously, things need to continue to ramp up before things get to any sense of normalcy, but uh, it is a positive uh, trend that's happening, and I implore everyone, if you have the opportunity to get vaccinated, please do so. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's going to be our best defense, and if you want everything to be back to some sense of normalcy, getting the vaccine is going to be it uh, more than anything else. So uh, get vaccinated when you can, keep washing your hands, mask up. Let's keep our friends and family safe. All right, we'll take a quick break. And when we return, we'll welcome back our guest. Welcome back to the Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine. We are excited to introduce Daisha Price to the podcast. Daisha is a clinical assistant professor of social work at the University of Michigan School of Social Work. We are going to touch on a number of subjects with her, but first, Daisha, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So could you give us some background about yourself, how you got started, You know, you know, know when you joined Michigan, how you got into the work that you're doing right now?
2: oh yeah sure um it's kind of a long story but i'll try to make it brief for the for the minute that we have but essentially i've been at university of michigan for the past six years Um, And I joined the team as um, I was a community collaborator from the community mental health in Wayne County. However, my story and journey into the social work as a profession started quite a long time ago by being engaged with an amazing social worker. Her name was Celeste Hawkins. And she used to be a social worker at Ozone House in Ann Arbor, actually. And through that experience, she supported me in ways that I really didn't even though it was possible. So even though my young years wanted to, uh, wanted me to be a lawyer, I wanted to go into law, child development, I had all of these other things, but after engaging with a social worker that was truly involved in being um, mindful and creating an empowering space for me, I knew that that was a profession for me. So here I am.
1: That's great. Yeah, definitely had been impacted by social workers, excellent social workers myself. Um, So glad that you chose to join that field as well. Um, Daisha, I want to ask you a little bit about mental health and uh, something that you've talked about as a continuum of mental health or wellness. And I'm curious if you can talk about kind of what that means to have a continuum and and how might that concept of a, a continuum of well-being help people understand mental health more broadly?
2: Absolutely. And I just want to thank you all again for even allowing that conversation to happen. Oftentimes, we've been surrounded with messages about our physical health. And we've learned that there's things that we need to do to maintain our physical health. But we don't have the same conversations about our mental health, when in reality, it is exactly the same. So when we talk about this mental health continuum, it's recognizing that mental health is actually a state of being. It doesn't have to be associated with an illness, which is what most of us have been accustomed to doing. So we think about how sometimes we think about one end of the spectrum being healthy and maintaining that health. And there are some times there will have a reaction and we may become injured and we may develop and have an illness, but we can do different things at different points of, of that continuum to maintain uh the bet to live our best life that we can. So I always say people understand when we talk about physical health, you're, you're healthy, you want to keep up with your water, your food, your sleep, your exercise, all of those things which also help with your mental health, but we don't often think about it how when we start to feel this reaction with our physical health, I give you sometimes it's that tickle in the back of the throat, that's what I always tell people, you know when you get that tickle in the back of your throat and you know something's just not right, even if you've been doing all those things, that's kind of what it is with mental health, we start to see like, oh, our our patterns are changing a little bit. So when we think about mental health and behavioral health, think about it as anything that impacts your mood, your emotions, your behaviors, and know that it doesn't always mean you have an illness. You could, but it could just mean that you need to do some different interventions to get back to a state of your best wellness.
0: I think that's a terrific segue. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of the difference between like what mental health is as a totality, mental wellness, as you know, as a being and a mental illness as a diagnosis. Do you think you could kind of break those down for us?
2: Yes, I'll, I'll try. And so when we think, again, I tell people, when we talk about mental health, it is anything that has to do with your thinking behaviors, feelings, emotions. So, you're experiencing that all day, every day, whenever you're awake, right? And so there's some things you need to do in order to help that to be as stable as possible, which would mean the same things we do with our physical health, physical health, but also like taking time for yourself, um, doing breathing exercises, maybe doing some meditation, just to kind of keep yourself and your brain in a state of where it is able to function at its highest level. Now, when we start talking about having a mental illness, it is when there are things that are disrupting when you're experiencing what people say signs or symptoms. When you have those signs or symptoms that are interfering with your ability to engage with life activities with work, um, your relationships so one of my friends like to say anything that's disrupting your ability to live laugh and love if those things are happening for an extended period of time without any relief that could mean that you are either experiencing a mental health crisis or injury or you could have a mental illness now the thing about mental illnesses is that because it could be an injury, or it could be a full illness. When we talk about having that crisis, if you get the support and and, and help and, think and treatment that you need in that moment, many times people will return to their state of healthy being a- a- almost without any other challenges. We think about that a lot when it comes to adolescents and people who are 24 and under. It's like, well, if you get that help you need and that support when those things are happening, it's likely that you might not need it again. Versus when you have an illness, if something has developed into an illness and even with that immediate treatment and response, there's still some ongoing supports and things that you need. That is something you will work with a treatment team to be able to identify how can I manage this illness and still live, laugh and love in the best way as possible. Um, I think the best way to explain is when people have things like a code, a common code can lead to um, severe and ongoing chronic asthma. It can, it doesn't have to. Right. And so we think about that whole continuum of changes that happen with our bodies there. There's some people that have a cold and a flu and pneumonia. They get that treatment and their their lungs are fully functioning, going back, going forward. And then there's some that there's something that happens and it disrupts that. And they may need to be reliant on in, an inhaler or they may have to have breathing treatments frequently or. And, and the goal is to try to see how can we get your treatment? To make sure you can live your fullest life.
1: Absolutely, um, thank you for that. Would you say that it, is it fair to describe the difference between mental illness and mental health as just very simply, with mental uh, mental health or with well-being? I should say you always have a level of well-being, whether it's low or high, but you don't always have a mental illness. Correct.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for making that plain and succinct. It's it's a le- it's levels, and as I say to people, it's levels to this. And so it you always have some mental health well being, and yes, there can be some things that can make it feel like it's it's not at the best or highest level that you would want it to be. But there's also ways to continue to increase that. And I like to think of it as like you're doing your exercises for your brain, right? So I'm not gonna lie. I'm not at my fullest peak of physical health. I would like to be able to run a mile in five minutes maybe, (laughs) or spread a mile. But, you know, it takes work to be able to do that. But do I still have physical health? Absolutely. It's just at different levels at different times.
1: Got it, well- Uh, I'll leave the next question to our our miler Jeremy uh, at one point I don't know if you ever broke five minutes but Jeremy was a serious runner collegiate athlete Uh, I won't put you on the spot but if you want to share your time 426 are you serious yeah Absolutely. There's a lot of things I can't do in 426.
0: So. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I could break seven minutes right now, but yeah, there was a day and age when I, yeah, you're running college, you, you do okay. And I was not by any means, I was a walk-on. Like there are guys that were dusting me by 15 to 25 seconds. No
1: problem. Um. Anyway, so. Shaking my head.
2: <laughs> hey, but Jeremy, that's a great example of like, at one point in time, you were at a 426 at and and then at another time you might be at seven, another day you might be at 10, but you might, you, I wouldn't doubt it. You could get back to that for something if you want, if you really put the work into it, I think it could go back to that.
0: I appreciate that support. That is a, a wonderful sentiment. Our last podcast, we spoke about how we're all trying to get back into a little bit better shape and. When this snow melts a little bit more, we'll we'll all be able to get outside and and get back towards those uh those PRs that we all like to, to try to achieve. Um, to, to switch gears just a little bit, uh, some of the work you do obviously looks at some of the community aspects. Uh, what are your favorite things about working in the community and trying to not only just you know extol the knowledge that you have for you know mental health and and for wellness, uh, but just try to make people better.
2: You know, I think that I enjoy working with community members and different um, parts of our community, and I think people forget about all the different aspects of our community that bring us together. So that's law enforcement, that's education, that's social services. It's it's all of these different places, and we all really uh, exist together. And so when we started having this conversation about mental health, mental wellness, um, how to engage with each other, how to recognize what other people might be experiencing, it really makes it um, an opportunity for us to be able to communicate together and and work better together. So, when I mentioned that definition of mental health in a simple way of anything that influences your thoughts, behaviors, your emotions. So, sometimes those behaviors, depending on where we are, can disrupt parts of our community in many different ways. And so again, we have to be aware of that though if we really wanna start talking about how can we live together in the best ways as possible. So I think recently my favorite interactions have been with law enforcement and kind of seeing like what what does this behavior mean on both sides to civilians and to people who have sworn to protect and serve.
1: Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that specifically. I find it fascinating, especially in the context of what we're going through as a country, you know, the relationship um, between law enforcement and and civilians. And so specifically um, to the work that you have done with police, um, what should we know about trauma-informed police trainings and can those trainings improve interactions between law enforcement and the citizens that they're sworn to protect
2: absolutely so when we call what, what when we talk about trauma informed policing it's really about supporting law enforcement and understanding how to recognize and respond to trauma which means that we and we don't just do it in a Okay, let's let's tell you about trauma with the community. We do it in a both and, so where we're talking about, you know, let's understand that we are that many of us have experienced some sort of adverse experience in our life, and that we need to be very intentional about being able to recognize how that impacts what we're doing and how we react to other people. So they're becoming more mindful of who they are, and because they experience a lot of trauma, either. Sometimes it's in their personal lives, but in their day-to-day work, they are experiencing a lot of traumatic events. And so they have to also be able to recognize what is happening with me and how might that impact me when I'm going out to engage with the public. And so by being able to recognize it in themselves and in others, it allows them to go out and respond in ways that are not going to hopefully perpetuate more trauma in the community. So- Our officers that have gone through a bit, I'm a part of a team that's called Crisis Intervention Teams. And we do training around how do you respond and and how do you first recognize? Because that's another thing. Everybody wants law enforcement to be able to respond appropriately, but in order to respond appropriately, you have to be able to recognize what's present. And then giving them specific tools on what to do when they encounter certain things. And it's been really successful Even when officers have said, I don't think this is going to work, once they get the training and they actually put it into practice, they come back and say, you know, I've been doing this and the relationships with my community is just so different. We're finding less people that need to go to, um, to jails and getting detained and having negative outcomes. They're seeing that people are getting connected to the services that they need. And that is amazing.
0: I think one of the important things that you're touching on is kind of like that grassroots nature of, you know, community uh, connections. And I'm just curious, um, what is like, what was the difference um, maybe this year compared to years past in in kind of getting those trainings done? Or at least has there been a change in attitude toward them since everything that really took place this past summer?
2: Wow. Now that's a difficult question because even though we're on audio, a lot of times people can can tell that I am a Black woman, okay? So I'm a Black woman, woman with Black children, with a Black husband. And so I will say that it has been difficult for me to be able to engage and remember that they are also human beings that are being impacted by what is happening in society. So, by continuing to use like my grassroots understanding of what mental health is and relationships, I had to, I, I had to, and continue to have to remember that they are in very challenging situations. They are human beings, and in order for them to even take information that I have that's valuable, we have to identify what where is our commonality. And at the end of the day. We all say what we want is safe and happy and healthy communities. So by us all centering on that vision and mission, it's been really helpful. But there it, I'm not gonna say there hasn't been challenges because they feel, you know, they've been targeted. They feel targeted by everyone in the world, even when it's not their own department or agency that has perpetuated. They're like, we know when people hear law enforcement, that's all of us. We don't get to step out of that. Um, so that's been interesting, but it has also, I think, made them more committed to say, you know what? we have been doing these things and we're not going to stop we're actually going to be more intentional about it um so we've been doing cit even before the social unrest we've been talking about trauma-informed policing but now that it's public and people are able to recognize like oh you mean there is a word for this there's a training associated with this it's been we've been able to reach more people So that's been really uh, nice. And I can't say enough how developing the relationships, because there's this, they say social workers and police officers, you know, it it can get real interesting. And, but by being able to come together and talk with each other and learn together, and it's not just a one day thing, right? It's an ongoing relationship building. And I I trust those officers. I, I trust those officers with my life.
1: I love hearing that, and you can, you can hear the the social worker in you as you talk about it, right? And and talking about them as police officers, as people, law enforcement, as people, and and what experiences they bring to this, and what biases they may bring to it based on those experiences. Um, it's there's just so much there to it. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, as a social worker, you know, you take, um, you look at it as I just said, from, you know, the holistic, in a holistic sense, right, all the things that impact people. And we've touched on a number of things that are related to each other, right? Uh, Law enforcement, the continuum of well-being, um, how, you know, if we end up on the wrong end of that continuum or in an unwell place, it can lead to interactions with law enforcement. And yet, proactively, you've talked about, you know, sort of the need for prevention, the need to, um, you know, stay out of those types of interactions in those situations. So I guess my question is, as a social worker with all these moving parts and all these different factors that play in, how do you sort of sort through what do you rely on in an individual situation to say, okay, these are the resources that are best utilized or that should collaborate on this versus, you know, maybe these ones are for another issue. How do you take all those moving pieces and sift through it to come to the outcome that you're trying to achieve?
2: So That's a really great point and question. And I guess what I would say is I've been leaning on the interprofessional education um, program and training that University of Michigan offers to kind of think of it through a lens of, yes, as social workers, we're going to take a holistic perspective. But that also means that we need to have players on our team that are able to address multiple aspects. And so what that is leading to is more of an integrated healthcare model that actually doesn't differentiate between physical, mental, or social wellness and social and emotional. And, and our uh, some people will say, okay, so when we start talking about social and emotional wellness, we're talking about education access, we're talking about um, economic access and stability, we're talking about food, we're talking about housing, we're talking about all of those things. And so trying to have these models of care that is inclusive of all of these different professionals is really what I try to to do, and so a lot of people call me. I, I say I'm like the connector, so I make sure I have people in every aspect of uh, of do- domain of wellness that someone could be experiencing something in, and being able to make those connections. I think if I had to say where I would start, is that I we we often say we start with making sure people have their basic needs met in like a social service kind of way, because we found that when people are anxious about having their basic needs met, it's kind of hard to keep working towards those other things. So we try to center that. Um, And again, with working with law enforcement, because they're often the first responders to things and making sure they have the resources to connect directly to a place that can actually do those things for a person so that they can feel like they can start working on their ultimate goals. So we start with the basic needs, um recognize that as a critical part, recognize how that impacts because we're talking about things and behavior. We can't even get into the neuroscience of all of this, right? Because I think it's important for people to recognize like that there is some things happening inside our brains when this is happening and when we are in crisis, the rear parts of our brain are like, pump and pump and pump and try to keep us safe and secure so until we can get that rear brain to feel like it can relax our frontal brain with the critical thinking really is going to be challenged to get in there right so I encourage all of us to think about how we can build connections across professions and say you know I'm not saying I'm the expert in this but I, I know people on our team that that is capable and supporting you in those ways. So that's how we do things in, 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 in my little sphere of influence. I, I always know somebody.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I just think it's so important and to ha- be able to have these discussions and to sort of wrap the, the discussion, bring it full circle with the policing and, and looking at it from different perspectives, right? I think often the reason talking is important is we're saying a lot of the same things or we agree on a lot of the same things, right? A lot of people who may say defund the police, often we're saying, you know, a, a police officer shouldn't have to be a social worker, and a police officer, and a mental health expert, and you know whatever else is added to that uh, list of responsibilities. And I think police are probably saying the same things. Of you know, we know how how awful it can feel to feel unequipped, maybe to do all parts of your job right and so to be able to have those conversations to understand all right what are they bringing to this what are they trained for what are they not trained for so where are those gaps that we can you know come in as social workers and and help you know figure them out so uh, you can comment on that take it from where you want i just think it's so important to have these discussions
2: is and I think that um and I may not have even answered the other question as well as I wanted to but I will say like as a concrete starting point what I've realized is we have to also educate the community because one of the reasons why law enforcement gets pulled in in crisis situations is because people aren't clear they know to call 911 right like we have been conditioned to say if I have an urgent situation no matter what it is, I'm going to call 911. But in reality, every single community actually does have crisis response for especially for things like mental health. So, luckily we have a actually is very underutilized 211. That is that was trying to get people to say, if you have these urgent situations and you need resources and referrals, call 211 and we can connect you to the accurate place in your community. And so if we can get even that out as a more uh, utilized system, because I I actually think that there's some, stick the stigma that's associated with mental health is what prevents people from calling mental health. So I tell my fellow social workers, when they say, well, you know, Defund the police, or have social workers do the police, and I, or or go out. And I say, well, we have a one eight hundred number, and they're not calling us. So there's a reason why they're not calling us. So <laughs> they could call us if they wanted us, but it, there's a stigma associated with it. They have to feel like they can trust us as well. So we're not without fault in this. So I would encourage people to start thinking about, and it has happened um, in Wayne County. There's a They, they started a, a 24-hour uh, access line that was kind of easier for people to remember um, for for hope. And what we heard, we heard so many people calling in these past six months saying, I'm having a mental health crisis with my family member. I don't want to call the police because I don't want it to end up in a negative situation. And we're like, yes, like, because they don't want you to call either because that's not, I mean, they will if they need to, but this is a healthcare emergency. So let's talk about how we can support you in this situation. So I would and again because I there may be listeners far and wide I do say start using 211 as a resource no matter where you are nationally to say you know where are what is my local mental health services where are my local social services how can I get this support without calling 911 and using law enforcement as the default
0: I think that's a, a great place to uh, to wrap things up, Daisha. I think you have um, you know really laid things out very plainly for everybody and uh, in some of the clearest ways that I've heard it uh, since working in mental health. And the last question I have for you is: this is your chance to pitch what you want, and maybe you just did it. Uh, but we'll turn it over to you. One thing you want to tell us, everybody, about, or uh, you know, one one website they should visit, or something about you that they should know or do. This is all you. Oh.
2: The pressure. No, (laughs) what I will say is I just ask everyone to remember that we are all in different spaces. And so we are all going to do things that later on in life, we might say, you know, I would have handled that a little bit different. And if we can all be able to recognize the fact that all of us probably have had some sort of adverse experience in our life. Support each other in getting the, the help and treatment that someone may need. There are lots of local resources that people can access. I know our students at University of Michigan, I guess this is where I will put in a shameless plug. Um, I do facilitate a clinical field practicum unit and I have about 19 students that deliver um, brief solution focused. Cognitive behavioral therapy to any individual. They they don't have to have insurance. Um, if they are Medicaid eligible, they will see them as well through Southfield Mental Health Associates. And it's all te- it's all virtual at this time. So if people can support each other. Um, recommend that their peers and colleagues and loved ones just reach out to people and normalize that, please do so. Because the resources are out there. I think a big myth is that it's not. And so there are lots of resources. Please reach out. And then there are going to be times that people are going to do things that you don't necessarily like. Don't say, don't don't just write it all off and say, oh, that's a ha- awful thing. Know that we're all constantly evolving. And so give yourself and the people you love a lot of space and grace and, and allow us to kind of continue to heal as, as a society and do your own and support others in doing it as well.
0: Aisha, thanks so much for joining us today. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Uh, that concludes this episode of the Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine. A special thanks to Fatima Doudwala for assistance with this episode. Be sure to tell your friends about us. Please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you have a question for us, email us at mentalminute@umich.edu. at umich.edu and maybe your question will be read on air. Follow the Depression Center on social media. Our Twitter handle is at DepressionCNTR. Like us on Facebook at University of Michigan Depression Center and follow Michigan Medicine on Instagram at umichmedicine. Visit depressioncenter.org for more information for all our activities, events, programs, and research. Have a safe February, wash your hands, mask up, and we'll catch you in March.